From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, we look at school reopenings and a new report analyzing successful interventions across the globe and offering research-backed recommendations for states, districts, and school leaders. We thought, what can we learn when we look at other countries about these specific factors that work, no matter where they're put in place? What would it look like here? We welcome David Steiner and Ashley Rogers-Burner, researchers with the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University, which co-authored the report with Chiefs for Change. Steiner and Berner share some evidence-backed strategies for states, networks, and schools. One of our recommendations is that we follow those countries that had suffered under SARS and as a consequence have built in practice with remote learning into their school years so that they're at the ready. And some important recommendations for stakeholders across the country. Too often, American instruction is a mile wide and an inch deep. This is an opportunity to say what really matters. So I think not only is less more, but depth rather than breadth, acceleration rather than remediation, and patience. It's not all going to be solved in the last week of August or the first weeks of September. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hello, and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith Miller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. Uh, today, we welcome David Steiner, Professor and Executive Director of the Institute for Education Policy at the Johns Hopkins School of Education, and a member of both the Maryland State Board of Education and the Maryland Commission for Innovation and Excellence in Education. Thanks so much for joining us, David. My pleasure. And we also have the pleasure of speaking with Ashley rogers Burner, Associate Professor with the Johns Hopkins School of Education and Deputy Director of the Institute for Education Policy. Uh, she's also an expert in international school systems and served as the lead researcher and author of the report we're focusing on today. Thanks so much for joining us, Ashley. Thank you so much for the invitation. So, uh, as I mentioned, today we're discussing the new report, which was co-authored by your institute and by Chiefs for Change, which is a, a bipartisan network of state and district education leaders titled The Return. How should education leaders prepare for re-entry and beyond? Uh, it's the result of a comprehensive study of interventions both here and abroad um, and offers some research-backed recommendations for states, districts, and school networks uh, now planning for an unprecedented and a a really uncertain school year. Uh, To start, what led your institute and Chiefs for Change to team up in producing this report? As your uh, listeners are certainly aware, there have been a large number of reports from different institutions about the challenges faced by American schools as they contemplate reopening, uh, in some cases face-to-face, in some cases remote learning, in some cases mixed modalities, Um, but looking to the fall and what happens. As we looked at those reports uh, with our partners, Chiefs for Change, we were struck by the fact that there was a great deal of wisdom in them, but also a great deal of overlap. Quite understandably, the focus was on health, 
such things as taking temperatures, social distancing, worry about student trauma, and logistics, crucial issues around transport. Uh, How are you going to get students to school when you may only be able to put 10 or 11 students into a school bus? It did strike us that those questions were being pretty fully discussed. There weren't any simple answers, but there was no shortage of advice. By contrast, there seemed to us to be less attention to some equally important questions around learning, around the academic challenges, around the timetables, many of which I know we'll come to uh, in the following conversation. But to put it bluntly, we saw a real opportunity to address key educational challenges which we didn't see covered in the kinds of reports that were circulating at the time. Um, So the report offers a a number of recommendations, which we'll get to in just a minute, but I'm curious about the work that went into them. Um, They're informed not only by successful interventions we've seen here in the U.S., but by high-performing systems around the world. Could you walk us through your approach to this report? Um, In many ways, I think this report is, at least from our side, very much uh, an outgrowth of the work we do every day at the Institute, which is to look not only at what's working in our country, but to really examine what the critical components are of very successful democratic school systems around the world. And so a good number of the research projects that we undertake at the Institute and the resources that we've developed draw on what we've learned from other systems. So as we were working with our partners, Chiefs for Change, with whom we we often partner in, in research and resources, we thought, what can we what can we learn when we look at other countries about these specific factors that work, no matter where they're put in place? Things like a content-rich curriculum and a strong school culture and well-prepared educators who have meaningful career ladders and so forth. And we, we did a crosswalk. We would look at what works in other countries and then say, well, is it politically viable here? What would it look like here? Um, so you'll notice in the report, we have examples from abroad, but also signs of success in this country. I guess I should also add that it, it is difficult to to translate from other countries in part because school systems are just that, right? They're systems. And they're coherent. As a matter of fact, David's doing quite a bit of work on this notion of of a systemic, of a system coherence. So isolated interventions need to be thought of really properly in terms of how they fit into the whole. So that was our approach. Say, what's necessary here? What can we learn from abroad? Where do we see analogs in this country? So with that, let's jump into your recommendations. Um, we unfortunately won't be able to discuss them all here. Um, and I would encourage listeners to read them uh, and read the full report at chiefsforchange.org or at edpolicy.education.jhu.edu. But what would you say are your main recommendations for states, districts, and other stakeholders at this critical period in American education? And this takes us into the heart of our report There are essentially four domains of recommendations, and I'll go through them uh, in turn, and I'll be brief. 
The first is time, um, the strong use of time. Uh, as you know, the American K-12 calendar uh, was the result of a mixture of factors, but essentially a concern among urban leaders that children in the inner cities would not be effectively able to learn in the heat of the summer with no air conditioning. Uh, and so we have these long summer holidays uh, that pre produces something we call summer melt, uh, where all students forget some of what they've learned in the previous year. And some research suggests that the worst off students economically forget some of the most material. So one of the recommendations is to take this opportunity where many, many districts and some states are thinking about the whole learning experience and asking if this isn't the moment to redistribute uh, school learning timetables more evenly across the year to avoid this long, long break in the summer. We look at the longer school years. Uh, many countries do much longer instructional years than the 180 days in the United States. Uh, often there are 200 days abroad. Now, doing more of something that doesn't work isn't going to help anybody. So we want to be clear that when we ask for the possibility of longer school years, uh, of perhaps longer school days, we're asking that to be taken into account with rigorous academics, with good planning and structure, not just as an end in itself. Secondly, talent. How should we organize adults uh, in the schools? And here, the, the model that's been with us uh, for well over 100 years, uh, really, in our view, based on research, needs to change. Not every teacher is equally good at academic instruction, social and emotional support, curriculum leadership, data analysis, or mentoring. We would have a far, far better system, and we would incentivize teachers professionally in much stronger ways if we distributed their talent and matched their talents to specific projects and responsibilities in our schools. A really strong instructional leader can be responsible for more than 25 students. Others who may have real talents with meeting students where they are emotionally, contacting parents, should be doing that. Others may be really strong at mentoring their young colleagues. So let's rethink the, the market for talent in a way that recognizes differential skills. Thirdly, the social and emotional and wellness and skills of our students. Clearly, there is a focus, rightly, uh, with the COVID crisis on the fact that students, some of them will have experienced really deep traumas during this period. Um, there's intense uh, difficulty, I would say, in many, many households where folks are being pressed together for many hours a day and tensions in the past may have exploded in very painful ways in these last months. That is, is crucial. But it goes beyond a concern for the immediate emotional and mental health of our students. It goes to their capacity for student agency and efficacy, their capacity to self-manage, their long-term self-directions and other habits of success. Uh, we know these matter but we haven't built them into our instructional models in any very systematic way. 
And finally, the academics themselves. We have so many teachers who are still essentially making up their curriculum, collating and curating their instructional materials, basically as they go along. Um, we believe strongly, based on research, that all teachers should start with high-quality curriculum and then adapt it gradually for their specific student populations. So high-quality curriculum, professional development aimed at that curriculum, at teaching those materials. Principal leadership as instructional leadership, again, focused on what's being taught in the classroom. So a repurposing of professional development and teacher support. That's a, a quick overview, obviously far more details in the report on each of those four crucial pillars of strong schools. As we're facing now both an economic downturn and what will likely be a contentious political season in the months ahead, uh, do you think states, districts, and other stakeholders will be able either economically or politically to adopt recommendations like these? Well, there is no doubt that we're in for some turbulence economically. And of course, our political culture has been fractured and fractious for a very long time, unfortunately. Um, and I, and as far as these recommendations, it's, it's, it's going to depend on the recommendation itself, whether individual states or districts or networks can adopt them. They also differ in kind, I think, in terms of the economic and political lift required. So, for example, with curriculum and assessments, states and systems, and, and by the way, not only district school systems, but charter networks and private school networks and so forth, have to invest in curriculum anyway. And they, they may may as well redeploy their resources that are allocated for curriculum to something that's quite uh, high-powered and, and, and knowledge-rich and will lead to student gains and narrow the achievement gaps. The same with assessments. There's a certain amount of money that needs to be expended on assessments in any year, in any context. So might as well redeploy those dollars to be more effective assessments. And in our view, assessments that incentivize really rich teaching in the classroom that don't act outside of the content that is meant to be mastered by students. Um, Chiefs for Change members, and again, our institute have worked relentlessly on this particular issue. So that I would see is more cost neutral. Now, once we start reconfiguring teachers' roles and the, the time involved in the, the year, we reconfigure the calendar, we are talking about uh, contract changes in the contracts, perhaps um, changes in the statute if we're talking about uh, class size in certain contexts. So that will depend upon the political will in a given community. Um, and what else is on the table? As we know, these grand bargains tend to, to happen. You can't get everything you want. Um, but it will depend. I think probably the most difficult lift is the investing in remote learning capacities on an ongoing basis. That one of our recommendations is that we follow those countries that had suffered under SARS and as a consequence have built in 
practice with remote learning into their school year so that they're at the ready. And this makes a big difference. And that is a fiscal lift. And I think here we will need to recommend not only the use of CARES funding, which has been allocated for this purpose, but hope that philanthropy is able to step in uh, to bridge that gap in broadband and devices and so forth. I think on the SEL side, the social and emotional learning, there is quite a bit of political momentum and educational momentum and philanthropic momentum towards more of a focus on social and emotional learning. I think the real trick there is that is to to not settle for a quick fix of a program that is added onto whatever the school context seems to be. One of the really interesting findings from around the world is that social and emotional learning or character development or whatever you call it tends to be greatest in the context of a coherent school culture. So there, it's really not a matter of mustering the political will, but of slowing down enough to be very thoughtful about maximizing students' well-being in the school context, drawing upon the ethos of the school, the vocabulary of the school, and so forth. So finally, while we have you both here, I wanted to ask, um, in your work on this report and in your own experience as researchers and working in the ed policy sphere, do you have any general advice for states, districts, school leaders, or even practitioners who are facing what is sure to be an enormous challenge uh, in the year ahead? Well, I think, first of all, I have enormous empathy for all of those in this field who are trying to manage the restart. Um, and not only the restart, but continuation of learning uh, this summer. Uh, I had the privilege of serving as Commissioner of Education for the state of New York, and I'm only too well aware that senior administrators face a massive list of things to be concerned with, as do local school superintendents, as do principals and teachers. I think in this context where it can really feel overwhelming, we need to say that less is more. What I mean by that is that we're going to have to give up on teaching everything we might normally try to teach in an academic year. They're just going to be too many disruptions. Schools may come back. They may do spectacular work in using their cafeterias, their gymnasiums, get all the students back. Then an outbreak of COVID occurs and suddenly everyone's back to online learning. They may have staggered timetables where students do a mixture of being in school physically and at home online and then discover that the online work just doesn't match the schoolwork. Um, so the flexibility here is going to mean that in the end, you can't teach 112, 120 science concepts in a year. Um, as it is, our research internationally shows that we try to do too much um, too often, American instruction is a mile wide and an inch deep. This is an opportunity to say, what really matters? What are the crucial math skills and conceptual knowledge? What are the one or two really important texts in ELA that we can dig deep into? 
what's the period in social studies? Um, what are the crucial experiments in science? Uh, what can we do in the arts? Uh, focus on the crucial and then focus on pathways or scaffolding so that students who are behind are able to join their peers in studying those few crucial skills, mastering them, studying that knowledge, mastering that knowledge. Don't try to remediate everybody and everything. Don't try to teach everything that was missed. Many of the best curriculum are helping here. They are actually producing assessments linked to the curriculum that pinpoint crucial areas where students are behind and offering tailored catch-ups, tailored accelerated learning routes for teachers to use with students. So I think not only is less more, but depth rather than breadth, acceleration rather than remediation, and patience. It's not all going to be solved uh, in the last week of August or the first weeks of September. I would add that as we look around the world at different democratic school systems, one of the very striking features is that in most democratic countries where they have pluralistic school systems, you don't hear the kind of political zero-sum game about education that we hear in this country. You know, there's, they're not pit, they don't tend to pit entire types of schools against one another. Rather, the focus seems to be on helping all schools get better. And they tend to fund a wider variety of schools and hold them to much higher standards academically. So, you know, the crisis has, um, has been universal. It hasn't just affected one type of school or one region or one geography. It's, it's not even just national, it's global. So I think this is a really good time to, uh, to your point earlier, Keith, about our broken political culture to at least as it's in, in so far as it affects us to stop pitting entire sectors against one another and say, let's learn from each other and let's collaborate wherever we can. Crises can remind us what we all share. That's very well said. Um, and again, this is just incredible work and it comes at such an important time um, in our country's history. So I really want to encourage all of our listeners to read uh, the full report. Again, it's titled The Return, How Should Education Leaders Prepare for Reentry and Beyond? And it's now available for free at chiefsforchange.org and at edpolicy.education.jhu. David Steiner and Ashley Berner, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to the series, you can find us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest a future topic, you can follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. That's C P R E 